Morning, Emmanuel. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. And if you would, put a finger in the book of Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to take one more pass at the temptation of Jesus. Or as we said last week, the testing of Jesus. We'll look at that uh, one more time. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11. And we'll look at it a little bit uh, through the lens of Hebrews chapter 4, which tells us something quite remarkable about our fellowship with Jesus and His ability to sympathize with us since He's been through every temptation we could ever face. So, Matthew chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 4. And while you're on your way there to Matthew chapter 4 and putting a finger in Hebrews chapter 4, I'll let you know this will be our last time in Matthew for a little while. We're going to spend about 10 weeks in the Proverbs uh, through the summer. Myself and a number of other pastors will be walking through a number of studies uh, through the Proverbs. So I'll spend some time uh, introducing that next week. Can't wait to be in just one of the most practical books in existence and certainly in the Bible and really helps us in so many basic uh, areas of life in very, very helpful and God-honoring ways. So I'm excited to uh, share that with you next week. But for this week, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11, and then in case you're wondering, we'll return to Matthew in the fall uh, next year as well. This same year. This fall. Trying to get the most out of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. This is God's Word. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written... He, that is God, will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 4 says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. 
let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, we come before You and we don't even have even close to the foggiest idea of how badly we need Your Word. So would You come and not only give us understanding, but even the desire to understand, the hunger to understand, the calling out in our souls to understand. Lord, that would You tune us together as a congregation to lean into Your Word. Would You help us to listen and to hear and to receive and to be transformed and to obey and to delight in Your Word and specifically in Your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, when I was a kid, I played the alto saxophone. And I want you to understand that when I say I played the alto saxophone, I mean that in the most generous sense of the word. I mean that it might be better for me to say that I was able to make notes on an alto saxophone, and I was usually able to avoid a squawking of the saxophone. And if surrounded by enough good musicians, I was sometimes credited as making music with my uh, alto saxophone. Well, anyway, one of the things I remember from my uh, sax days is uh, when I would play a D, so pressing down the top three keys and the bottom three keys, when I'd make a D, blow a D note, my stepbrother Brad's snare drum would vibrate. Well, it's not because of how bad I was. It's because of the distinctive snare would vibrate when I hit this deep note because of something I learned years later. That there's a name for this. And the name is sympathetic resonance. And really, you can even see this with a piano. It's especially easy to see with a piano. It's actually happening all the time in a piano. If you were to have, say, two pianos in a room and you hit middle C in one, the C note actually on the second piano would vibrate sympathetically. In fact, one of the reasons that acoustic music is so rich is when you're banging on one C note on just a piano, there's actually multiple other notes, multiple other strings with overtones of that sound that are resonating at the same time. A C actually hits off four other notes on a piano. And what's called by physicists and musicians sympathetic resonance. Now, I always think of that little musical fact when I think about the words of Hebrews 4.15, which tells us that Jesus Christ has a sympathetic resonance with our hearts, especially when we are tempted. Did you hear that? The verse says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The verse describes Jesus as our priest. 
the one who brings us to God. But then it tells us that he's not a priest who's distant. That's usually the idea people have when it comes to priests. They're distinct, different, not like us, set apart. Here we're told that our great high priest, the one who actually brings us to God, has a distinct ability to sympathize with us when notes are struck in our heart, they cause sympathetic vibrations in his heart. His heartstrings are literally moved with what's happening in your soul. And this happens specifically, we're told, when we are tempted. Now listen to me. This is an amazing comfort because Christians generally feel at a distance from God when they are inundated with temptation. If God is holy and if God is perfect and here I am being inundated with the most awful and ugly thoughts, then certainly if ever there was a time that I'm distant from Him, it's right now. But what we're being told here is that instead of actually being at a distance from God when we're being tempted, Jesus is actually particularly sympathizing, particularly leaning in, particularly aware of, particularly understanding, particularly resonating with the temptations which we are experiencing. Think about that. C.S. Lewis famously said, friendship is born at that moment when one person says to another, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. And we don't often think about Jesus in terms of that kind of friendship. What, you too? I thought I was the only one. This is exactly where the devil wants you. He wants every single believer believing that they are being inundated with temptations no one has ever felt before. That they are in an utterly unique situation. That no one has ever been come at just like this before. He loves to get believers alone. But instead, we find that it isn't just that we sometimes meet Christians who struggle with the same sins as us. But we have a Savior, not who struggles with sin but who has experienced the fullness of every temptation we have ever tasted and sympathizes. He draws near in sympathy, not recoiling in self-righteousness, but draws near in sympathy towards our temptations. Now you might be saying, does he really though? I mean, does he really? I mean, this verse seems eager to assure us that he does. He has been tempted in all points as we are. He sympathizes with us. But does he know all the temptations we are going through? It says he was tempted in every respect as we are, but was he ever an 83-year-old widow faced with the temptations that come in loneliness? Did he ever experience the lust of a teenage girl? Or what about the temptations towards suicide that can come to a middle-aged man full of responsibilities, remorse, and regret? Does he know anything about that? I mean, he died in his early 30s. How can the Bible make the claim that he was tempted at all points as we are? So it can feel like, oh, that sounds good. He, he can sympathize with me. Wait a second. He's never experienced life 
the same as mine. So how can he be said to be tempted at all points as I am? Well, I think that we'll see this morning as we look at Matthew 4, 1 through 11, that he was indeed tempted in every way as we are. And I, I want to show this to you by, by taking a walk through Matthew 4, 1 through 11 again. And my goal throughout this walk through Matthew 4, 1 through 11 is to increase your fellowship and your friendship with God. And in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, we're going to see that he really knows all the ways the human soul is tempted. But you won't notice it the first time you read through Matthew 4, 1 through 11. I mean, how many of you have been tempted this week to turn a stone into a loaf of bread? I mean, I, had to, I texted my GCG being tempted right now, wanting to turn stones into loaves of bread to prove that I am the Son of God. No. Anyone been tempted to throw themselves off a tall building so that God could catch them? Okay. Now, I assume some of you had some pretty dark thoughts this week, but anyone tempted to bow their knee to the dark Lord so they could receive all the nations of the world and their glory? So on first pass, it doesn't seem sympathetic. It doesn't seem like he knows what I'm going through. It doesn't seem like he's close to me. In fact, it seems to accentuate this idea that he doesn't know what I'm going through. But if we'll take another pass and just think about these temptations in terms of the principles and not the particulars, if we'll look at the principles underlying the temptations and not the particulars, we find that in this passage, Jesus shows us He's actually gone through everything we have ever experienced. We really can sing, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows except Jesus. Because although you might not have experienced temptation that involves bread and stones and jumping and getting caught and worshiping the devil, and receiving the world, you have been tempted to put your physical hungers in front of the Word of God. You have been tempted to doubt God and make Him prove Himself to you. And you have been tempted to worship an idol or a lesser God so that you could get more of this world instead of heaven. Anyone experienced those temptations this week? Every last one of us. In fact, we would do well to begin to trace our temptations to those principles, to begin to think, this, I would try to do this last night. I was getting irritable, and I'm thinking, which one is this? What, what am I getting irritable about? Where does that fit? Is there something physical I'm hungering for? Above God's Word, we call this thing hangry. Or is there something I want? Is there some way I'm doubting God? He's got to prove Himself to me? Or is there some way where I'm willing to compromise God, diminish God, shrink God, and worship that shrunk God so I can get more of this world for myself? 
That's what I want to see. And, and I don't want you to miss this. I want us to get more insight into temptation so we can get more victory over sin. But it's not simply that I want us to get sin under the microscope. I want you to see that if you understand how you're tempted better, you'll understand your Savior more. Because that's where He meets you in sympathy. Have you considered your temptation as prime devotional real estate? Have you considered your temptations as a prime place where you were meant to meet with God? Or is that something you need to get through to meet with God rather than something you can meet with God in? Well, to my mind, if, that, if, our, if our minds shift that way so that we see temptations as a place where we can meet with Jesus, it's opening up all kinds of avenues for friendship and fellowship with God. So let's look at the first temptation. Like you, Jesus was tempted to put his physical hungers ahead of his allegiance to God's word. Like you, Jesus was tempted to put his physical hungers, and of course, there's bread, there's sex, there's rest. There's entertainment. There's all kinds of things we long for physically. Jesus was tempted to put his physical hungers ahead of his allegiance to God's Word. Let's look at the first temptation and see exactly what this is. The devil says to him, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, it's a little tricky because where's the sin? I mean, the devil's saying, do a miracle. And John will tell us at the end of John's gospel that Jesus did so many wonderful works, in fact, so many miracles, that you couldn't even fill all the books in the world with them. I mean, Jesus was all about miracles. So what's sinful about being tempted to do a miracle when you're the Son of God who's going to spend their life doing miracles? And on top of that, the devil actually is tempting Jesus to do a miracle that he was particularly fond of, making bread. This was a big one. He fed 4,000 loaves of bread from just a few loaves of bread. He fed 5,000 on another occasion. So what's the temptation here? Do a miracle. That's not a sin. Make bread. Bread's not a sin. What's the sin Jesus is being tempted to do? Well, we see it most clearly when we look at this through Jesus' eyes and ask, how did he respond? What was his answer? What did he perceive the problem to be? And he responded to the devil with these words, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. But even there, I don't know if we've got right to the root of it. Because it'd be really easy to read that and go, you shouldn't love bread, you should love your Bible. I've been a Christian a long time. I still really like bread. And all the things that go with it. And I don't think that Jesus is here telling us that we're to diminish our love for bread or all the good things of creation and just love our Bibles all the time. That does not seem to me to be the message. The message becomes very clear when we do what we did last week and we dive into the context 
that this word was originally spoken in. And of course, that context comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. You'll remember that Jesus quotes three times from Deuteronomy when He's dealing with the devil, and He quotes three times from the portion of Scripture where Israel's coming out of 40 years in the wilderness, and Israel's being told how they're going to go into the promised land, and Jesus quotes those things and does whatever Israel never did, which is believes them and acts on them. Well, anyway, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, you may not have time to turn there because i got to keep moving, but here, here's what it says. Listen carefully. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says this, He, that is God, humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, translate manna, bread, just for sake of argumentation here, okay? He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with bread, which you did not know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Check out the logic. God gave you bread so you wouldn't trust bread. Do you see that? He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with bread, which you did not know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What's going on here? What's going on here is that God had Israel in, in, in preschool. He had Israel in the training school for getting them into the promised land. And in the training school, he says to them, I'm going to give you bread every single morning. I'm going to give it to you six days a week. And he says this in Exodus. He says, pick up enough for yourself every day. Don't try to save it. Don't try to put it in a freezer. Don't try to put it in a 401k. Just take the bread I give you for each day and eat it then. And how well did they learn the lesson? It was pathetic. They started sticking it in their pockets, sticking it in their bags. It all turned moldy on them, rancid. What was the lesson? God was saying, when I speak bread, you'll get bread. And you don't need to plan for two or three days ahead. You need to recognize that when I tell you you'll get bread, you'll get bread. And I'm giving you bread so that you'll realize that you don't live by bread. I'm giving you bread one day, two day, three day, four day, five day. On the sixth day, you get two days worth of bread so you can take a day off and I'm giving you this bread so you'll realize I don't live by bread alone, but bread comes to me as the Word of God commands bread to come to me. In other words, the priority of my life needs to be listening to God's Word and obeying it, and as I'm listening to God's Word and obeying it, God doles out bread. There's the priority which means it was an Old Testament way of saying some very familiar words. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things, like bread, will be added unto you. And when you see that principle, well, honestly, I start to see as a pastor all the sins that plague the people I care for. Right? You got some people who go, I know I need bread. I know I need bread. And Paul comes along in Ephesians and he says, Let the thief no longer steal, 
but let him do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to give. Don't go get your bread by stealing it. You're getting bread needs to come under the authority of God's Word. You don't get it by theft. You get it by hard work according to His Word, and the end result is bread. But here's something I actually see more often at Manual. We, by God's grace, have a very industrious group of people who want to set their lives up in a solid place financially and really provide for those in their care. That's a good thing. But what happens over and over is people are like, it's my responsibility to get bread. I got to get bread. God wants me to get bread. And so what do I need to do? Well, I need to fret and worry and work all the time to get my bread. And what you wind up with is, well, at least in many situations, neglected wives, neglected children, neglected churches, because workaholics are sinning through overwork to get bread. And they're not listening to Psalm 127, verses 1 through 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for He gives to His beloved sleep. Some of you are faithful to get bread. And you can use that a lot of different ways. An actual loaf of bread, money, resources. You're faithful to do it. But in 10 years, I'm going to move into your life as a pastor and it's going to be divorce, adultery, shattered children's lives. Because you were so busy pursuing the stuff that you didn't seek first the kingdom, wash your wife in the Word, teach your children the Bible, get a good night's sleep, and get your bread under the Word of God instead of getting your bread as your top priority over the Word of God. Your doom is imminent. And I'm not just talking about eternal doom. That may be the case too. But I'm talking about the undoing of what you're building is coming upon you. Unless you learn to reorder your life according to the Word. Word first, then bread. Word first. Love your family. Love your church. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Then all these things will be added unto you. The world we're living in is in desperate need to satisfy its hungers. The principle going on in this, in this temptation is satisfy your hungers apart from my word. Listen to the devil instead of me about getting your bread. And the world we're living in is desperate to satisfy its hungers. And in this generation, that means mostly sexual hungers. But it refuses to think about how those hungers are to be satisfied in obedience to God and only in obedience to God. We must learn to regulate our lives not by our hungers, but by God's Word. Listen to me. 
Adultery is a way of pursuing your hungers apart from God's Word, which would lead you into the faithfulness of marriage. Watching porn is a way of satisfying your hungers apart from God's Word. Watching TV shows with a little too much skin is a way of satisfying your hungers apart from God's Word. Listening to romance novels or sexually explicit stories is a way of feeding your sexual hungers in a way contrary to the Word of God. And in all these things, there's a rush, a titillation, a passion, and an excitement, but there's not fellowship with God. The fellowship with God comes when you start fighting these temptations, because then there He is, not scolding you, but sympathizing with you. That's where you begin to know His sympathy, His power, His holiness, His friendship. Beloved, I beg you to flee the empty promises of a hot, erotic, scintillating relationship with something online or in a story or in a song and to come into the full promises of friendship and fellowship that come when you're fighting sin like Jesus and in sympathy with Jesus. You with me? Two. Like you, Jesus was tempted to make God prove His Word instead of simply Believe in God's Word. Like you, Jesus was tempted to make God prove His Word instead of simply believing God's Word. The second temptation was a temptation to test God. Satan threw two Scriptures at Jesus, both from Psalm 91, and both of the Scriptures are promises that God will deliver His people. And of course, by implication, that God would deliver His Son, His Messiah. The, the promises that Satan quotes are, He will command His angels concerning you. So if you jump off a tall building, whoa, it's going to be amazing. There's going to be winged creatures swooping down, catching you. It'll turn out for your glory and your goodness. On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You won't even get a bruise. You'll be like the men in the, uh, in the inferno in Daniel. You won't even smell like smoke. You're going to be... So delivered. What's the temptation? I mean, is there anything wrong with trusting God when you're in a bad situation to deliver you? Uh, no, that's what Christianity is. We're trusting God that before hell comes, we're going to get the resurrection. We're trusting God that He's going to deliver us. The sin, when we look at it through Jesus' lens, is not trusting God to deliver you, that's not a sin. It's putting yourself in a place where He's got to deliver you when you don't even need to be there. Do you see that? Listen to how Jesus responds. Jesus, this is the thing. We don't just trust Jesus to show us how to fight sin. We actually trust Jesus to show us how to spot sin. We wouldn't even know what the temptations were if we didn't have the insight of Christ. Jesus answers, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, when Jesus says you don't put the Lord your God to the test, he's actually referring back to some incidents at places called Mirabah and Massa that are mentioned by my count this week 11 times in both Old and New Testaments. The, the Bible harps on this. There was this time in Israel's history, right after they're delivered out of, the, out of the land of Egypt, right after they've seen the Red Sea part, right after they're freed from their slavery, where they 
tested God and God never forgot it. He brings it up all throughout the Bible. It's, it's big on his mind, this testing. And what the testing was, was that once God had moved seas, so if you've ever been the kind of person like, I just wish God had shown me a miracle. This generation saw a sea move, so they're all good, right? They, they've, they've got some guarantee from God that he is with them. But what happens in Exodus 17 and that surrounding area is they start testing the Lord. Where's our water? Where's our food? And of course, there's nothing wrong had they humbly gone before God and said, Lord, you've delivered us from Egypt. Could we have water? Lord, you've delivered us from Egypt. Could we have bread? There's nothing wrong with that kind of prayer. Testing is not asking. What's wrong in the words of Exodus 17, 7 is that they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? They went full-blown toddler on God. They're basically like, God parts the Red Sea, brings 10 plagues on Egypt, and they go, are you even with us? It used to blow my mind when we had little children. They'd sit down in the chair at the dining room table and they'd, they'd cry like you'd never given them a meal in their lives. Who do you think I am? Captain Starvation? I feed you all the time. I don't even know if you exist. And Israel did this to God. Psalm 95 puts it really well. I told you there's 11 times this testing is referred to in the Bible. Here's one of them where it really gets to the heart of what the testing was. Listen to this. Your fathers put me to the test. They put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. They had seen God's work, and then after they saw God's work, they said, prove it. Like, uh, what would you have me do? You, you want to say like a 10 plagues and a parted sea? You see, you see the problem? He'd already proved himself, and now when trials and tribulations arise, their gut reaction is, prove yourself. And here's what's happening with Jesus. Jesus is baptized. The Spirit of God comes upon him. A voice from heaven says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, if you want an assurance of who you are in the world, that's it, right? When I got baptized, a dove came out of the sky and landed on me. And then a voice came from heaven and said, I was the beloved son. And then the devil comes and says, if, if you're the son of God. God's word's not clear, not proven, not settled, not fact. He's going to need to do something to prove his love for you. Prove his word is true. And that thing he's going to have to do is you're going to need to jump off this building and once you get caught, then you'll know that God always tells the truth. So testing is this doubting and demanding response to God that makes him prove what he's already proven. It's this doubting and demanding questioning of God, calling on him to prove 
what he's already proven. And Christians are particularly susceptible to this when they're suffering. When the baby doesn't come. When the baby dies. When the husband doesn't come. When the husband cheats. When the cancer comes. When the widowhood comes. When the loneliness comes. Christians are particular prone at that moment to say, no, prove it. Prove to me that you're God and you're good. Never mind that he placards Christ in front of your face every Sunday morning saying, I loved you and gave my son for you. Never mind that he puts bread in your mouth and wine on your lips every single week to say, I died for you. He's also got to fulfill my prayer request in my timeline, in my way, quickly, or he doesn't exist, or he's certainly not good. I have watched people leave the faith because they gave God a timeline and a description of what he needed to do to prove that he was existing or that he was good. Let me just make this very clear. When it comes to testing in the Christian life, there's only one person who's ever being tested for character, and that's you. Okay? God, God has every right to test us, to see what we're made of, and we have no right ever to test him to see what he's made of. And the miracle of Jesus is that, I mean, come on, you're about to embark on a worldwide, on, on a mission, on a mission that's going to leave you dead. It'd be kind of nice to know that if you fall from a building, there'll be angels to pick you up. Be, be kind of an extra reassurance, kind of just another, you know, just put a little spring in your step. But Jesus' attitude is he already told me I was his son. And some of you would have a great deal more assurance of salvation if you would do this. You'd lean your soul into this. He already told you he was your, you, you were his child. He already told you Christ died for you. He already told you how, how sinful you were. He already told you that he sent his son to die for sinners. He already told you that his son was raised from the dead. He already told you that the Bible could be believed. He already told you that his promises were good. He already told you that he who began a good work in you will carry it on till Christ Jesus. Maturity in the Christian life does not come when you start demanding that God do a special miracle to satisfy your doubts. Maturity in the Christian life comes when you put your demands aside and you trust His Word. That's where the maturity comes. Crazy thing is, when you rest in God like that, He'll probably do a few miracles along the way but they're not received as proof for your doubting heart, but as assurance for your trusting heart. Third thing. Like you, Jesus was tempted to worship a false god to get more of the glory of this world. You see the temptation there? 
Again, it is written, this is verse 7, sorry, verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, what the devil did have the right to say, all these I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. I love Jesus' answer. It's kind of an enough answer. Okay, that's enough. We did three temptations. I've been, I've been tempted at all points as they have, yet without sin. I think it's time for you to go. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall not worship the Lord your God. Sorry, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. What was the temptation? You'll get the good stuff of this life if you'll just bow your knee to me. Now, James Montgomery Boyce pointed out years ago that there's actually very few people in the Bible who go head-to-head with the devil himself. Adam, for sure. Jesus. Generally, we wrestle with his minions. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in the heavenly places. And those minions are always taking a play out of their master's playbook. Hey, if you'll worship a diminished God, a false God, a distortion of God, your life will be better. This was the this was the allure of the Baals in the Old Testament. You're familiar with the Old Testament? You know that Israel's always being attracted to the Baals, this, this God of the surrounding nations. And what was the deal there? Well, if you'd worship Baal, better crops. Better crops. Better crops. Better food. Better food. Better houses. You know, you, it just goes out from there. The allure of Mormonism and Islam, and there's actually been scholarly comparisons between Mormonism and Islam for, well, as long as Mormonism's existed since, I think, about 1844. The allure of both Mormonism and Islam, worship a false god that seems a lot like the real god, he's just one god, and you get the celestial virgins in heaven, and you get to be one of the gods in heaven who has sex eternally. It's just the best stuff in life deferred. This is the way the devil operates. Hey, there's one true God. He's got a son named Jesus. And if you believe in him, you'll have health and wealth if you just name it and claim it all the days of your life. Let me just diminish him a little bit. Distort him a little bit. And listen, there's a reason why people who preach this aren't preaching to 600 on a Sunday morning. They're preaching to 60,000, 6,000. They're preaching all over the world. Because there's all kinds of people all over the world who want to say, yep, if there's a God, make him a little smaller than the real God, but there's a God, and he'll give me a little more of the world's glory. I'm into that. I'm into that. But we need to recognize today as a congregation how this temptation might affect us. And you know, I've been thinking lately, this temptation, just bow to a diminished God, you'll get the world's stuff. We might not notice where we're falling into that today. 
You see, uh, there's so much opportunity in our day. Follow me here. Don't, don't, I need, I need you to right till the end. There's so much opportunity in our day to be so focused on the confusion of our culture that they don't even understand what life is. They don't even understand what babies are. They don't even understand what gender is. They don't even understand what sexuality is. There's so much temptation to focus on where our culture is so messed up and get all of our focus on just avoiding the perversions all around us. We can make the whole Christian life going, hey, the world is twisted and perverted. Just avoid that. That's Christianity. But in the midst of all those perversions, there's an old God who would be happy to take you down even if you hold on to conservative beliefs. And that's the God of covetousness. Wanting stuff. Wanting riches. Wanting what Francis Schaeffer called personal affluence. Francis Schaeffer saw in, the, uh, in his day, he died in about 1984. Well, he didn't die in about 1984. He died in 1984. His ministry was especially prevalent in the 60s and 70s. He looked at his own day and he saw the God of personal affluence was reigning supreme among everyone. You had the, the long-haired hippies in the 60s and 70s, and then you had the short-haired conservatives. And he said they were both united in their pursuit of personal affluence. This is what the 80s was is when the hippies started making money. And they basically started worshiping what had been being worshipped all along. Personal affluence. And in our day and age, we're, we're just constantly hearing about the right and the left, the right and the left, the right and the left. It could, could amount to a civil war. The right and the left, they're so different, they're so distinct, they're so apart from one another. Except they both shop for the same stuff and value the same personal affluence. Above all, covetousness is a tricky God. Remember the principle we're looking at. We're looking at this principle that you worship a diminished God to get stuff. You follow me? This is what Jesus was tempted to do. Bow to the devil, you'll get the world. Here's what you're tempted to do. Bow to some diminished view of God, some idolatrous view of God, and you'll get more of the glory of this world. Maybe more friends, maybe more stuff. You name it, you can get it. It's all available here if you'll just diminish your view of God. And covetousness is tricky that way. See, the Bible says this about covetousness. Follow me, follow me, follow me. It says, covetousness is idolatry. It is the worship of a diminished God. Except covetousness is tricky like this. Here's how covetousness is tricky. All the other gods have God and gift, God and gift, God and gift. Worship Baal, you'll get crops. Worship uh, Allah, you'll get virgins in paradise. Uh, worship health and wealth gospel, you'll get health and wealth. God and gift. Covetousness is brilliant though. The gift is the God. Covetousness, wanting that stuff, is idolatry. There's no distinction. It's so economical. It's so packaged, so perfect. It's just the, the wanting stuff. Just wanting stuff is the God. And we could get so focused on the difference between right and left and where we stand in this that we could miss the fact that we are so utterly out of sync 
with the New Testament's utter rejection of covetousness, personal affluence as a God. Listen to the way the New Testament talks about money. Godliness with contentment is great gain. 1 Timothy 6. For we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. You can renovate your bathroom, your kitchen, but you can't take it with you. Now listen to this standard. Listen to the standard for contentment. Listen to this and gauge your worship. If we have food and clothing... How many of you woke up this morning, looked around your house and said, well, there's food and clothing here, so we're all good? No, the endless Zillow scrolling. Ooh, it could be a lot better than it is right now. Yep, 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 yep. If we have food and clothing, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through the craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Have you avoided the temptation of the love of money? Or do you find yourself constantly diminishing your view of God so it can justify your pursuit of personal affluence? It's demonic. It's the temptation Jesus overcome. There may be more fellowship for you than you ever imagined by a, re by a, by a redeemed view of money. Instead of worshiping and coveting things and stuff, there could be a contentment like Christ with what I have. Listen to, listen to the way the New Testament talks. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Keep your life free from the love of money. It, it does not just say, keep your view of gender and sexuality biblical. Right? Anyone hearing me this morning? Am I? I'm in North America. Somebody ought to know what I'm talking about. I'm in the richest nation that ever was. Talking about where it's at. Anyone think this is a guiding command for your life? Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have now. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You've got me. So you don't need everything they got down at the Home Depot, you don't need endless renovations. You don't need more stuff all the time. You've got me. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What drives your life? Is it a contentment with what you have right now? Do you find yourself fellowshipping with Jesus, fighting the false worship of covetousness, or are you immersed in a life of covetousness? I'm just going to tell you right now, if you're not fighting covetousness in America, you are immersed in it. It's funny, you know, different nations have different characteristics. 
Right? Canadians are? They're nice. That's right, we're nice. All of them except me. They're all nice. Okay? Germans are precise. They're precise. If I'm flying through Europe, I want a Germanic country. It's coming and it's going on time. I love it. But then someone comes along and says, Americans are materialistic. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, I know, but you ever met a really material? No, no. You struggle with it? No, no. The devil would tempt us to worship a diminished God, the God of covetousness, so we could have more of what covetousness offers. And it will destroy us. And we miss out on friendship with God because Jesus wants to be our friend sympathizing with us as we fight the battle against covetousness. Now someone's going to say, Ryan, it's not wrong to be rich. And I would say to that, amen. If you were given those riches or earned those riches honestly, without deceit, while generously giving, while caring first and foremost for the home good of your family and your church, it is absolutely not wrong to be rich. Did someone hear me say that? But there are commands in the Scripture that will keep your riches from being your undoing. Listen to these verses. And if you are here, apply them to yourself. Because even if you're living below the poverty line in the year 2022, you are living way above the national average of Americans from the 1950s. And if you're wealthier than the average person you know, just double listen. Here's what we, here's what we hear in 1 Timothy 6.17. As for the rich in this present age, there's commands for you. It's just like there's commands to women, just like there's commands to men, just like there's commands to, the, to, to, to children, there's commands to the rich. As for the rich in this present age, charge them. That's my job. Charge them not to be haughty. Do not be proud rich people. I earned this thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I get it. You did. I get it. Hard work involved in making rich. I get it but there's a lot of divine providence and grace. A lot. Can I please have an amen? Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. You could be poor tomorrow. Worship God. Worship and serve God only. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So you are biblically rich if you are rich in good deeds. If people look at you and go, he's got a lot of money, but man, he is always giving it away. She's got a lot of money, but she is always giving. They are to be good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up for themselves treasure as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let me go back to the beginning and then let me close. All of this 
is not primarily about writing a bigger check. All of this is about calling you to greater friendship with God. He wants to sympathize with you in your weakness, and that sympathy is available when you recognize where your weakness is. You are tempted to value physical hungers over the Word of God rather than make the Word of God everything in how you regulate your life. You are tempted, and I am tempted, to test God and make Him prove Himself even though He's already spoken so definitively. You are tempted to diminish God so you can get more glory in this world. And specifically in this culture, you are tempted to the sin of covetousness, which is idolatry. And if we together as a family would fight those sins, we would know greater fellowship with God. We would know more of Him resonating with us in sympathy. So let me read you this verse and then sit down. Beloved, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace like He did to help in time of need.